0: chapter one. Um, and as you are opening to there, I just want to remind you that as we started this series last week, as we started looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians, we quickly discovered this little letter is potent. This little better letter, as I kind of warned you last week, has, the, has a high probability that it is going to mess with you. This little letter is probably going to challenge your understanding of what it means to be a Christian because as we saw ever since people first got their hands on Paul's little letter It has been changing them like crazy. We saw this in the early church. We saw this with Martin Luther. And we see this today in the testimonies of believers who come and open up the Bible, come across Galatians and have their entire understanding of what it means to be a Christian completely transformed in a good way. And so that's why I'm saying this letter is incredibly potent. But more importantly, and I hope you see this as we, continue to exp- as we continue to explore Galatians together, this little letter, when you understand Paul's understanding of the gospel, it's incredibly freeing. Now, last week I gave you the background to this letter. Paul is writing at a time when the church is made up of kind of this weird amalgamation of 50% Jewish believers and 50% non-Jewish believers. And up until this point in the church's history, nobody had really asked the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Because up until this point, everybody was Jewish. And so they just assumed, well, obviously the way you become Jewish, or excuse me, the way you live out your Christian faith is by being Jewish. That was just natural. But then when you start bringing in these non-Jewish believers, they had to ask the question, well, what do we do with them? Do we make them become Jewish? Or are they kind of allowed to keep doing their own thing? How, how do we balance this? And there was a whole bunch of debate, even among church leadership at the time, as to what we do with these non-Jewish believers. On the one side, you have Paul. And Paul argues that all you have to do to be a Christian is acknowledge the Christ. All you have to do is acknowledge that Jesus is the rightful king of the world, And all it takes to be a Christian is to recognize that as our king, Jesus has done everything for us. That we respond to through faith. That is Paul's argument. But on the other side, you have men like James, the brother of Jesus, who argues that no, actually, if you want to be a Christian, you have to become a full-fledged Jew. And the way you become a Jew is by fully submitting to the law. Which means if you are going to get right with God, you have to do stuff. You have to submit to the kosher laws. You have to submit to the Sabbath. And as we talked about last week, men, you need to be circumcised. Now, here's what happened. As you clearly experienced this yourself, this little message uh, was hard to swallow as we talked about last week. But so what happens is, this is the context Paul writes his letter to the Galatians. See, Paul, after, writing, or after coming back from a missions trip where he shared his understanding of the gospel with the Galatian church and saw many of these non-Jewish people come to faith in Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, be made right with God, Paul comes to discover that after he left, some men from James came in and they started preaching, actually, Paul only told you half the story. Paul was right. Yeah, Jesus did something. But really, in order to be right with God, you have to do stuff. You have to follow the law. You have to become Jewish. Well, when Paul found this out, Paul, just, it, Paul found it untenable. He simply couldn't understand how we could start from a place where we say, Jesus has made us right with God, and then think somehow that we need to add to the work of Jesus. See, from Paul's perspective, if you say in the least bit that the only way to get right with God is dependent upon our actions, dependent upon our faithfulness, dependent upon what we bring to the table, then you've entirely cut Jesus out of the process. You don't need Jesus because the Jewish ways, the Jewish system, it's existed for 1500 years at this point. If you wanted to be right with God, all you had to do was be Jewish in the first place. You don't need Jesus. Or as Paul puts it, if you could get right with God on your own, by your efforts, by your abilities, then Christ died for nothing. This is Paul's argument. In other words, Paul preaches a gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And many of us, have grown up hearing that. Many of us have taught that in Sunday schools. Many of us have said, yes, that is the theology I cling to. But as we saw last week, as you begin to dig in and start to peel apart what it means to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it starts to get a little uncomfortable. Because many of the things that we have been taught our entire lives, many of the things you've taught your own children about how to be a Christian, you begin to realize they're not actually in the Bible. Many of these things that we've used to measure our own faithfulness, many of these things we've used as marks of being able to say, I'm secure because I've done X, Y, Z, were never actually obligations in the first place. They were never mandates. Your church attendance, how much you read the Bible, how much you pray, it's not in there. Even your ability to keep God's law It doesn't matter if you profess grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And at first, I have to admit, it's incredibly disconcerting to hear this. It's very jarring. It's quite uncomfortable. I remember the first time in seminary when this was presented, I was like, nope, that's a lie. You are wrong, sir. And it wasn't until, as I continued to process it, as the professor continued to talk about it, as we continued to digest it, I began to understand Not only, yes, that is exactly what Paul is saying, but more importantly, Paul's gospel is incredibly freeing. It's incredibly freeing because all those feelings that you have that you're not doing enough, all those feelings of inadequacy, all those feelings like you're not pure enough, you don't know enough, you haven't done enough, you haven't gone to church enough, you haven't read your Bible enough, you haven't prayed enough, you haven't, you haven't, you haven't, you haven't, it doesn't matter. Because it's not about what you bring to the table. It's not about what you do. It's all about what Jesus has done for you. And when you stop stressing about what you do, when you stop stressing about what you bring to the table, you're freed up then to simply live as Jesus intended us to live, as we were created to live. And you go, well, what is that? How do we do that? Paul says, the only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. Or Jesus puts it another way. You are called to love one another As Jesus has loved you. That's what being a Christian is all about. It's not about the trappings. It's not about this legalism. It's not about what you do. It's all about what Jesus has done for you and responding to that. That is Paul's gospel. That is the theology we preach and cling to as a church. But as you can imagine, as you kind of feel a little thrown by this yourself, you have to understand, when Paul first preached this, it was not immediately well-received. And in fact, the church, the early church leadership, had a big debate about whether or not Paul was right. They called together all the church leaders, you can read this in Acts 15, and they debated Paul's ideas. And they said, who's right, Paul or James? Do you have to do something to be a Christian? Or is it all about what Jesus has done for you? And all of the church leadership, including James, affirms, no, Paul was right. Paul was right. You don't have to do anything. You just have to receive what Jesus has done for you in faith and respond in faith through love. Well, this is incredible. But here's the thing. While the church leadership embraced Paul's ideas, not everybody embraced Paul. Paul still had his enemies, and we know both from Galatians itself, but also from later Christian writings, later Jewish Christian writings, that Paul's enemies were constantly trying to undercut him. Paul's enemies were constantly trying to dismiss where he got his ideas, because they knew if you can dismiss where Paul got his gospel, you can dismiss Paul, and so in Galatians, his enemies argue that Paul actually received his gospel secondhand. He was taught it, either from one of the apostles or someone who the apostles had originally learned it from. And what they argue in Galatians is either Paul had misunderstood the gospel as it was originally told him, or he had willfully perverted the teachings of the gospel. This is what his enemies said. Other writings um, got a little more fanciful in where Paul got his gospel. And one of my favorites actually comes from a mid-second century document. It was written by a Jewish Christian who argued that where Paul got his ideas was Paul tried to date the daughter of the high priest, but he was rejected. And so as a scorned lover, Paul sought out the destruction of Judaism by preaching against the law. (laughs) And there's a lot of stories like that out there where they call Paul the lawless man, the enemy man, the man seeking to tear down Judaism. And what you have in all of these accounts is you see, while Paul's gospel may have been affirmed as true by the church, it didn't make everybody comfortable. It made people uncomfortable, and they tried to tear it down. Well, Paul was aware of this. Paul knew that people were trying to kind of undercut him and dismiss him. And so, in Galatians, he actually, right from the beginning, goes, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you my story. And if you remember last time, like, this is verse 1. He defends the authority of his apostleship. I didn't get this from a man. I didn't get this from any men. I got this from Jesus himself. And Paul does that again. After kind of just ripping into the Galatians for, lo- for forgetting his gospel and embracing James's gospel, Paul goes, let me tell you where I got my gospel. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So I invite you, please, Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 12, with that incredibly long introduction i read to you from the word of the lord i want you to know brothers and sisters that the gospel i preached is not of human origin i did not receive it from a man nor was i taught it rather i received it by revelation from jesus christ from the beginning paul goes guys i want to set the record straight I want to make sure you understand where I got my gospel. And first and foremost, you understand, my gospel did not come from man. I did not think this thing up. I didn't come up with this. No human person came up with this. Second, I was not taught my gospel. I did not receive it second or third hand. I received it directly from Jesus Christ himself. So if you have issues with my gospel, take it up with the big guy. That's essentially what he's going. And then what Paul does is he begins to unfold his story. And he tells of his life prior to Christ. And then he tells of how he has processed his encounter with the risen Christ. I'll let Paul say it in his own words. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. For I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to go and consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. And later, I returned Damascus. Now, for those of you who are familiar um, with Paul's story, you probably noticed there's some significant events missing in this account, and there's some little details that you're like, wait, I didn't know he did that, that are also in this. And here's the thing Paul is really just giving us a snippet of his story. And I I think while Paul gives us enough to be able to kind of launch in and defend his own argument in Galatians, I think it is worth our time today to take some time and actually understand Paul's story. Because Paul's story of how he encountered Christ and how Christ, like, shattered his previous worldview and then re-stitched it together is quite incredible. And so I'd love to share that with you today. Using Paul's words here, Paul's formula here, kind of as the springboard I'm going to jump in to helping you make sure you can kind of understand Paul's story a little more. But before we do that, English teachers in the room, did you notice Paul loves run-on sentences? Anybody else catch that? I having the hardest time trying to figure out where to take a breath in that sentence. There you go. Now that you're all in my head, I'll just move on. Okay, so here's what we learn about Paul. As he says, he was in Judaism... And he was advancing beyond many of his own peers. He was extremely zealous for the faith. We learn both in Acts and in other passages or other books that Paul writes that Paul was actually a Pharisee. And Phariseeism was a defined sect of Judaism in Paul's day. And Pharisaism believed or preached that the only way to be right with God the only way that God would fulfill his promises to us was if we were perfect in our obedience to God. See, you've got to remember the context in which Paul's day and age is writing. Paul is living in an Israel that is under foreign occupation. Rome is the superior force, and Israel is just one of their little nations underneath them. They're not sovereign, they're not independent, they're ruled by some foreign Gentile power, some non-Jewish power, and this is offensive to the Christians, to the Jews of the day. And all you have to do is look back in the Old Testament to understand why the Jews are under foreign occupation. It was because they, didn't, they weren't faithful to God. All you have to do is look back. Every time Israel was unfaithful to God, God allowed a foreign army to come in and conquer them. And so Paul, in his day, along with the Pharisees, developed this theological worldview that if we are going to get free from the Romans, if God is ever going to send his Messiah, if God is ever going to fulfill the promises he made through the prophets, then we have to keep up our end of the bargain. We have to perfectly obey the law. And so, as Pharisees, they memorized the Torah Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy word for word. But also, as Pharisees, they would have memorized huge chunks of the Old Testament. And Paul, as someone who excelled in this, and you can tell from Paul's other writings, Paul clearly had an intimate knowledge of the Old Testament. He was familiar with it, conversational with it. I mean, it was on the top of his mind. But also as a Pharisee, because he was adamant about making sure he kept the law perfectly, Paul also memorized all the interpretations there was by the great rabbis of what the law actually meant. See, what Paul got at is he knew the Bible. He knew the Bible, he had that totally memorized. But Paul also made sure he learned about what people said about the Bible. Because from Paul and the Pharisees' perspective, it was only when you perfectly kept the law would God send his Messiah. Another way of thinking about this is, you know when you read through the Old Testament and we went through this when we read through the story together and you go, "How stupid are these people?" How many golden cows does it take for them to realize a golden cow is a bad idea? What is wrong with them? Don't they understand what their God has done for them? How do they continue to turn? See, Paul had the same ideas along with the rest of the Pharisees. The difference is, as a Pharisee, Paul committed his entire life to making sure that his people were never led astray by false teaching again. So they memorized the law, they studied it, and they fought for the purity of their religion daily. That's what Paul means by he was zealous for his faith, passionate. And so one day, when Paul hears of this crucified Messiah being preached among the people, and Paul hears that many of these Jewish people are being led astray by this crucified Messiah, are being led to follow this crucified Messiah, Paul goes, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, uh-uh. Because here's the thing, Paul is completely familiar with the law. And Paul knows that to say you have a crucified Messiah, well, that's oxymoronic. You you can't do that. Because if anybody is hung on a tree, as the law says, they are cut off from God. It's impossible for the Messiah to be cut off from God. The Messiah is God's anointed one. You can't do that. So anybody that's preaching a crucified Messiah, well, they're clearly lying. And Paul, with the zeal of Elijah, who confronted the prophets of Baal, does everything in his power to make sure that he protects his faith, his religion. This is what we're getting at when we say Paul is zealous. And you wonder, why did he persecute the church? This is why. He believed the crucified Messiah was a false heretical doctrine that needed to be snuffed out. He was protecting his faith. So he rounds up Christians, he kills Christians. And one day, Paul gets permission to go out of Jerusalem and into Damascus and round up some of these Christians or Jesus followers that had made their way in different parts of the world. And one day, while he's on the road to Damascus, many of you know this story, a bright light appeared and blinded Paul. And out of the light, a voice called. and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You can read this in Acts chapter 9. Saul was Paul's Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek or his Roman name. Everybody's got multiple names in this culture, okay? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so you can imagine Paul being blinded is flopping around going, who are you? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus then tells Paul, I want you to go into the city and wait for one of my disciples and they will pray for you. You will receive the Holy Spirit and things will happen. But here's the thing, church. And what I want you to realize is it was in that moment when Jesus calls out to Paul and blinds him on the road to Damascus that Paul's entire worldview shatters at his feet. Everything Paul thought he knew, everything Paul thought he understood about how God worked, how the law worked, how the Messiah worked, all of it was shattered. More than that, more than that, Paul realizes that while he thought he was fighting to protect Israel for the Messiah, he was actually fighting against the Messiah. Paul was fighting against his king. And more than that, Paul had killed the king's people. And so as you can imagine, Paul, who felt this, this sense of righteousness in his actions and in these murders, feeling like he was doing something to defend the Lord, immediately realizes that everything he had been working for up until that point was wrong. These people he killed weren't guilty. They were innocent, and their innocent blood is on his hands. Now, I admit none of this is in the scriptures. It, Paul, We don't get insight into Paul's head or Paul's mind, so I am totally speculating. I want to make sure I'm clear on this. But what we do know is that immediately following this, Paul spends three days in Damascus, blinded and in complete silence. He doesn't eat, he doesn't drink, he doesn't talk to anybody, it just says he's praying. And so you wonder, well, what was going through Paul's mind? And I'll tell you, I I don't think this is much of a stretch to imagine what was going through Paul's mind. First and foremost, he's obviously just riddled with guilt, right? Right? realizing that everything he had been pursuing was just wrong. Everything he had been pursuing in terms of tearing down this this church and killing people. He probably had people's faces flashing before his eyes. I mean, all of this was going through his mind. But also, you have to remember, everything Paul thought he knew, everything Paul thought he understood about reality, it was shattered. And so in the span of that three-day period, while he sits in the dark silence of his own soul... Paul has to begin to rebuild his understanding of reality. He has to begin stitching it back together, but he does so through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This changes everything for Paul. When Ananias, the disciple, comes three days later and lays his hands on Paul, Paul even says it was like scales fell from his eyes and he finally saw things anew again. And Paul is then filled with the Holy Spirit and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul and Ananias head directly to the synagogue where Paul boldly stands up and starts preaching that the crucified Messiah is actually the Messiah. And Paul begins to extrapolate from all of the Old Testament prophecies that he had memorized how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. And Paul begins to build his theology for how Jesus changed the world in that way. Very moment. It's incredible. And what Paul tells us in Galatians, as you see, if we can throw it back up there, please, is in verse 17, he says, I didn't go up to Jerusalem at this point. I didn't go up to Jerusalem. I stayed in Damascus. I didn't go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went to Arabia. Then I returned to Damascus. You go, Arabia? I didn't know Paul went to Arabia. This is one of those super minor details that is really only mentioned right here, and there's a lot of debate about, well, what was Paul doing in Arabia? Some scholars, and I admit, we don't know because this is literally all we know about it, but some scholars say Paul went on a missions trip. He had become so overwhelmed and convinced by the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus was the Messiah, that he couldn't keep his mouth shut, and so he heads to Arabia to start sharing the gospel. That's one perspective. Other scholars, and and I find their view a little more compelling, say it was at this point in Paul's life he went on his own little pilgrimage. He still was processing and trying to understand how did Jesus change everything, and so he goes to Arabia. In chapter 4 of Galatians, Paul identifies Arabia as the home of Mount Sinai. And so, like Moses, like Elijah, Paul, as he begins to process what God is doing in his life, heads to Arabia, and what I think he's doing, and again, I'm making this up, but this is just from speculation off of, I think, reasonable speculation, Paul is sitting there continuing to process through the, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit how Jesus changes everything. And so Paul processes everything he's ever been taught in the Old Testament, everything he knows about the Messiah, everything he thinks about what it is to be right with God through the lens of the crucified Messiah who he encountered on the road. After this, he returns to Damascus. And then, as it says, he stayed there for three years. Verse 18. Then, after three years, Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, also known as Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And then like he's on a witness stand, he puts his right hand up and goes, I assure you before God that what I am writing is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia and was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. The only, they only heard the report that the man who was formerly persecuting us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Paul makes it abundantly clear. Guys, again, my gospel did not come from human origin. I was not taught it. Yes, I met Peter. I spent some time with Peter and with James. It was about two weeks, but that was it. I didn't get my gospel for them, and that happened three years after I encountered Christ. I did not learn the gospel from Peter. Paul makes this abundantly clear. All that happened was When people heard of Paul's story, they praised God because of him. Now, what we also know as you read through Acts, especially Acts chapter 12, and a little bit of Galatians, is that there is now another 10-year gap. Galatians 2 says, then after 14 years. Well, when 14 years? Probably 14 years after he had his original conversion, after he met Jesus on the road. Paul says, after 14 years, which means there's a 10-year gap in Paul's life, that we really know nothing about. All we know is that during this 10-year period, according to the book of Acts, Paul went back to Tarsus. Tarsus was his hometown. And while he was in Tarsus, we know he worked as a tent maker. That's all we know. But it's not hard to assume what Paul was doing there, because it's hard to imagine Paul working in some back room alone, not talking to anybody. You imagine this guy, when he's working on his tent, he's out in the street going, hey, want me to tell you about Jesus? Jesus? Hey, guess what he did? I encountered him. It was crazy. And so everybody that's working with Paul is like, all right, I've heard about Jesus. The guy that's sharing a booth next to Paul is like, can I move down the street? This guy just keeps talking about Jesus. Everybody that Paul encounters and sells his tents to, he tells about Jesus. Because as you see from Paul's life, I mean, he was so marked by his encounter with the resurrected Messiah that it changed everything for him. And the interesting thing is, we know that as a tent maker, Paul was most likely just working with Jews in Tarsus, but as a tent maker, he would have sold to non-Jews. And so what Paul does as he sells to these non-Jews is he has to figure out, how do I articulate what Jesus has done for this non-Jew? How do I begin to explain why Jesus is good news? Why this person needs Jesus in their life? In other words, for 10 years, Paul continues to refine and define his theology, and he begins to brush up on his arguments to make sure that they hold legal muster. In other words, what Paul does for 10 years is he becomes the preeminent scholar on non-Jewish believers, and the reason we can make this statement is, number one, we know Paul was a legal scholar to begin with. He was a Pharisee. He knew the Bible better than anybody else. So he was already, he already had his PhD. After he encountered Christ, he spent his entire time in that PhD trying to understand how does this apply to the non-Jews. None of the other Christian leaders were having this conversation. At some point, Paul or Peter himself had this incredible thing with Cornelius, if you remember, where he shares the gospel with the Gentiles. But none of the other Christian leaders are doing this. None of them are sharing with the Gentiles, with the non-Jews. Only Paul is. Which means after 10 years, he's the scholar. He's the resident expert. And so, when the first debate between Jews and non-Jewish believers breaks out in Antioch, Barnabas, one of the church leaders we find out in Acts 12, went to find Paul to bring him in to mediate the dispute. Because Paul knew the Bible better than anybody else. After Paul and Barnabas mediate the dispute... Paul tells us, as we find out in Acts, that they then went to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem. Acts tells us it was for one reason, is that there was a severe famine in Jerusalem, and so the church in Antioch had raised aid, and was, Paul was bringing aid relief to Jerusalem. But Paul in Galatians tells us he went for a second reason. He wanted to make sure that his ideas about Gentiles and Judaism and Christianity, how what it meant to be a Christian, was kosher, lack of a better word. He wanted to make sure it met muster. He wanted to make sure the church leadership approved of it, and they did. As Paul says in Galatians 2, they extended him the right hand of fellowship, and from this point, him and Barnabas, they set sail on their missions trip. First to Cyprus, then Galatia. It's when they come back from that missions trip that Paul then writes his letter. In other words, what I'm getting at is up until this point, this is Paul's story. This is Paul's story. And the thing that we see is evident from Paul's story is, number one, he clearly was not taught his ideas from some source. He wasn't taught this by the apostles. It wasn't handed down to him. He wasn't taught it secondhand. Second, as you see from his story, as he professes himself, he didn't get these ideas in his own head, The Holy Spirit, at a minimum, was working through him, but really it was the resurrected Christ that altered everything for Paul and totally changed his understanding. And so over the next 15, 14 years, as Paul develops his theology, this is what happens. See, on the road to Damascus, when Paul encountered Jesus, his whole world was shattered. His understanding of who God was, what God had done for him, what it meant to be right with God, all of it fell apart. He needed the Holy Spirit in about 14 years in order to stitch it back together, in order to understand what Jesus had done for the world. And what Paul, the legal expert, discovered, okay, and this is, we're gonna talk about this later, so don't don't think this is overwhelming, but this is what he discovered. Remember that big issue about the crucified Messiah and how Paul said, well, I don't understand how that works? What Paul began to realize is that as Jesus led the perfect life, when he was crucified, when when he died, Jesus actually wasn't just accursed, as though he would be cut off from God for himself, but Jesus became the curse for us. Jesus took upon himself all of our sin, all of our junk, all of our brokenness. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He was the perfect sacrificial lamb. And as the perfect sacrificial lamb, Jesus completely fulfilled the requirements of the law. And because the law had now been satisfied, because the law had now been fulfilled, the way we were made right with God was not through the law. The way we were made right with God is the same way Abraham was made right with God. And how was Abraham made right with God? Through faith and faith alone. And so Paul makes this connection then and he goes, Christians, you are not under the law. The law is completely fulfilled. You are free from the law when you trust that Jesus has done everything for you. You're not obligated to it anymore. You're freed up to simply respond to the love that Jesus has given you. Therefore, the only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. Or as Jesus himself put it, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus said, by this, by your love for other people, everyone will know you are my disciples. By your love for one another, everyone will know you follow me. By your love for one another, if you love as I have loved you, everyone will know I am your king and that you are with me. So what does it mean to be a Christian, according to Paul? You are saved by grace, through faith, through Christ. And the way you express your faith is through love alone. See, church, I wanna make sure we get this. And if you're thinking, John, you have made this statement for two weeks straight now. Guys, I got a warning for you. About five more weeks of this is coming. Because we're going to continue to extrapolate and understand what is the freedom that we have in Christ. See, when you encounter the risen Christ, it changes everything. When you understand what Jesus has done for you and who Jesus is, you realize all these obligations of faith that you thought you were under, these mandates, these have-tos, never actually existed in the first place. And more than that, these have-tos, you begin to realize are not obligations, they're actually just invitations. They're not have-tos, they're get-tos. You're invited to them. So I want to be clear on this. In order to be a Christian, you do not have to go to church. You don't have to go to church. But why would you not want to? See, it's at church where we begin to understand who our God is. It's a church we are come with brothers and sisters and we give glory back to God. It's a church that we study the word of God. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You don't have to read your Bible to be a Christian. But again, why would you not want to? See, it's in the scriptures where we get an understanding of who our God is, what our God has done for us, how our God has loved us, and we learn how to reciprocate that love. You don't have to read the Bible. But why would you not want to? Also, you don't have to pray. Do you see where we're going with this? You don't have to pray. There's no obligation. There's no mandatory requirement. There's no, this is how you pray. None of that. But why would you not want to? The creator of the universe invites you into a relationship with himself. He says, bring your baggage. Bring your good, your bad, your ugly. I want it. Because I want to be in relationship with you. I want to know you. I want to love you. And I want you to know me intimately. I don't want you just to know about me. I want you to know me. In a relational way. You don't have to pray. But church, if you understand who your God is and what your God has done for you, how could you not want to? One last one. You don't have to tithe. You don't have to give money to the church. You don't have to give money to God. You don't have to. It's not in there, and even the set amount, it's not really in there. If anything, 10% is probably really low when you actually add up the biblical number. You don't have to give money, though. And some of you are thinking, well, that is such a relief. Honey, put the checkbook away. Skip the offering plate. That's true. You totally can. But here's what I have come to understand about tithing. Is that it's in tithing where I begin to understand that what I have is really just from God himself. It's a gift of God. And as I give out of what God has given me, I fully trust, number one, that God is going to replenish what I have given tenfold. But more than that, I trust and say, God, I don't want to cling so tightly to my money that it becomes an idol for me. And I'll tell you, as Americans, I think this is our thing. We cling so tight to our money, we think we are in control of it, that it becomes this idol for us. And for me, personally, Tithing, handing over money to God and to the church and saying Lord I don't know what you want to do with this But do something is an incredible invitation to trust him an incredible invitation to say Lord Take this thing and do something with it more than that. I get to participate in kingdom work I become an investor By giving him money and I get to then actually have a voice and say I want to see God's kingdom do this And I step into it guys. You don't have to do anything But if you rightly understand who our God is, and what he has done for us, why would we not want to do these things? Church, my prayer for you as we continue to study Paul's little potent letter to the Galatians, is that you truly begin to understand just how free in Christ you are. And that those feelings feelings of burdens and obligations, and that you're not doing enough, that you are terrible, or whatever your feelings are, that those completely fade away. And in turn, you receive the grace, love, and hope of Jesus Christ. And out of that, you just go, I'm free to love. I'm free to serve my God and my King as I see fit, as He wants to be honored, as He has loved me. I'm going to go love other people. That's what we're free to do. Let us pray. Father, we give you honor, glory, and praise, both for who you are and for what you have done for us. Lord, in sending your Son, you have made it so clear that you love us in sending your son to die for us you have made it clear that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves and lord i have to confess that along with my brothers and sisters we love to try and steal glory away from your son we love to take glory upon ourselves and think we contribute in some way shape or form to our faith lord we confess that to you and Father, as we lay these thoughts and feelings and ideas at the feet of the cross, I pray, Father, that we would be more and more aware of just how significant the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is. And that out of His love that He lavishes on us, that we would feel drawn to Him. Drawn to know Him. Drawn to love Him. Drawn to worship Him. In spirit and in truth, we ask all this in Jesus' precious and powerful name. And all God's people said...